Mudinis Media. Black Friday slash pre-Christmas sales are well underway and from today until Friday the 4th of December you can get yourself a subscription to The Athletic for £1 a month for an entire calendar year. That means unrivaled analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, plus a breaking news service, exclusive Q&As with Athletic staff and ad-free versions of all The Athletic's podcasts for just £1 per month. Sign up today at theathletic.com slash totally. Totally Football Show. Today, Champions League. Olivier Neutron Bomb as Chelsea blows Sevilla away while Fred's head sees Reds hanging by a thread, feeling dread. And oops, I've done yet get again as Real lose to Shakhtar for the second time this season. Could everyone's favourite former Spurs boss be taking over in Madrid? A note him, that's Pochettino. We look ahead to the weekend's action in the Premier League, the North London derby, Liverpool Wolves and Chelsea Leeds, and we salute the return, mostly, of crowds. It's the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Hope you're well. It's December the 3rd, of course. We've got Premier League match week 11 ahead of us. Champions League match day five just behind us. And here with us in the eye of this footballing storm, Michael Cox, Duncan Alexander and Tom Williams. Hello to you. Hello, Hi, hello, James. James. Yes, hello, listener as well. Right, midweek, eh? Woof. It's just a general woof because I, I mean, there were so many things to talk about. We'll we'll get through them. But what most stood out for you, Duncan? Um, I enjoyed Olivier Giroud's four-goal haul away yes. at Sevilla. Um, I only found this out this morning while looking at some stuff. But that's he scored more goals in that game than any away team has ever scored in a Champions League game at Sevilla. So that's pretty impressive. That's amazing. Well done for not being cynical about the imminent opening of uh, transfer windows. Uh, yes, Tom, what leapt out from the two days of midweek action? Um, I mean, Man United PSG, not a particularly um, original thought, but was just a really enjoyable game. I think possibly the most enjoyable Champions League game that I've seen this season. Uh, you know, end-to-end, ebbed and flowed, bit of needle, bit of controversy, some good football and, yeah, sort of sets the group up nicely for what should be quite a quite a tense finale. I'll say, Michael, you were, you were very much enjoying the action at Old Trafford as well. Yeah, and that group in Group B, the Real Madrid group, um, looked really exciting going into the final round of fixtures. I think there was a danger that we were going to have everything settled after five match days, but that's very much not the case. So, yeah, I think that was the key for me. It sets it up ahead of a, a good final round. Mm, indeed so. All right, well, the headlines, if you, if you didn't catch all of the midweek results, Tuesday, Liverpool sealed their last 16 spot with a 1-0 win over Ajax. Ajax will now face Atalanta for the other place in the last 16. Porto were also through after holding Man City goalers. Bayern Munich's 15-game win streak finally ended with a 1-1 draw at Atletico, while the other Madrid club were involved in a pretty big story as Shakhtar Donetsk beat them again. Duncan, quick uh, stat here on Zinedine Zidane's record this season. Yeah, it's not going brilliantly for him. He's, he's already lost uh, more games this season than Steve Bruce, which uh, I tweeted and some Newcastle fans said they were, would be happy switching managers, but I don't, right. I'm not sure that would work. For they may time. have the opportunity soon because, of course, a hot topic right now in Madrid. We'll hear from Alvaro Romeo later on. It's a big week, this, for uh, Zinedine Zidane and Real Madrid. They have Sevilla coming up this weekend. Uh, against Yulan Lopetegui, of course, one of the uh, previous managers to be fired there at the Bernabeu. Anyway, Wednesday then, Olivia Giroud enjoyed that rare start for Chelsea by, as Duncan mentioned, scoring all four goals at the sanchez Pijuan to secure top spot in the group. Meanwhile, a 1-1 draw in Germany saw Dortmund qualify and Lazio Bruges become the dramatic final day showdown you weren't expecting. Meanwhile, at Old Trafford, Man United PSG saw this. Mbappé, encore une possibilité. Le petit ballon pour Rafinha. Faut finir maintenant Rafinha avec Neymar. Le voilà, le voilà. Le troisième but parisien. Et la voici, la première place qui tend les bras. Well, PSG's 3-1 win, putting them level with Man United on nine points. And Leipzig's 4-3 victory in Istanbul earlier on Wednesday means that they are all now, Leipzig United and the Parisians, on the same points ahead of the final day when Man United... Visit RB Leipzig. Win and a draw takes Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's side through defeat and they're out. Well, what happened then in this Man United-PSG game? United had been 
excellent in this group at home, uh, but could still be making an early exit. What, what do you think was the key here? I thought it was a very open game. I think um, it was interesting what uh, Dominic Fifield said on your podcast on Monday, where he was saying about Chelsea Tottenham that it wasn't a great game, but it probably indicated the fact that, you know, both teams are very well organised and, and probably just good teams that are going to challenge. I thought this was kind of the opposite. It was a good game. It probably illustrated why both sides have a few problems. Um, I think it came down to finishing in the end. I think Cavani's you know, brilliant chip onto the bar was inches away from giving United the lead. And Martial missed a near-open goal as well. But there was also kind of structural issues, tactical issues. And in that sense, I'd, I'd say the two things were, one... PSG changing to a back three towards the end, which I think gave them more width and more drive down the flanks that United struggled to cope with. And then the obvious issue that Solskjaer made, I think, one of the most baffling decisions I can remember to not take off Fred at half-time or even beforehand, but particularly at half-time, and leave him on in this game that was end-to-end, lots of tackles being made, Neymar clearly trying to get Man United's midfielders in trouble whenever he could. And eventually the tackle he got sent off for probably was a little bit harsh because he did get the ball, but... Mm. He was asking for trouble and I just, it could really cost United that. I mean, not just the game, but also the situation in the group. They've now got to go away to Leipzig and get a result to stay in the competition. And he's got five subs. It's not like he's only got three to use up. And he also had Matic, Pogba and Van der Beek on the bench. So, yeah, leaving Fred on just, I think, to everyone watching was a a massive surprise. And it could cost United dearly in this group. It's one of the strangest bits of managing I've ever seen, I think. And I'm not sure what the Norwegian is for he's going to try and even it up. But surely that happens in every... You know, when a ref realises that he's probably made a bit of a mistake, um, you know, if it's a penalty or a red card, he will at some point in the game be a bit harsher the other way to try and kind of even stuff up. And it was like Oli was trying to do a live flip reverse in real time to see, you know, what would happen if I didn't take Fred off. And if also, <laughs> if United don't go through this group... It's not just that bit of management that's going to cost them. You know, they had the perfect start with two wins. Then they had the middle two games where you play home and away against the easiest team in the group and they contrived to, to lose in Istanbul because they had 10 players up for a corner um, and, then, and then let Denver Bar run through. So, you know, the whole group has kind of been riddled with strange decisions that, that may very well cost them in that, Monday 6. That Fred decision, though, which was pretty strange in, in itself from the referee in the, in the first place, if you missed it, Fred clearly thrusting his forehead at PSG's Paredes. Uh, eventually, he did walk, though, for a very soft-looking uh, second yellow. I mean, from United's perspective, I think the Fred issue was was the main one. Um, and, yeah, the, the key... I mean, the, as, as Michael said, that the key point in the game was the early stages of the second half, where United got on top, created some chances... You know, Anthony Martial misses an absolute sitter. Cavani's shot comes back off the bar. And then Martial's follow-up is brilliantly blocked by Marquinhos. And if, if any of those chances go in, United are in front and it's a different game. Um, and PSG managed to weather that storm. Uh, and then Thomas Tuchel makes what ends up being the key change by switching to a 3-5-2 um, and sort of making it even more obvious that Neymar and Mbappe are no longer expected to do any defending whatsoever. Um, and I mean, you know, they did, they did put in a decent shift in the first half. Um, and then, yeah, PSG get ahead. Marquinhos scoring the goal at the corner, similar to, to the way that he popped up with decisive goals in the Champions League final eight last season. And then Neymar picks them off on, on the break at the end. Um, so, yeah, I think that was, you know, that was probably the sort of 15, 20 minute period where the game was won and lost. Paris Saint-Germain had the chance to put this to bed uh, before Neymar eventually scored the third goal, killing Mbappe on a fantastic breakaway move, which he, he then dragged it wide when he either could have squared it to, to Neymar or, or hopefully hit the target. It, it's now, I think, actually a year since he scored in the Champions League. Can you, can you think of any reason why a player that talented has gone so long without a Champions League goal? There has been some talk in France about whether Mbappe might have plateaued slightly. Um, I mean, obviously his trajectory over the first three or four years of his career was spectacular um, but he hasn't scored a goal in the Champions League in a year uh, he's, he's been decisive in the Champions League I mean he's, he's produced key assists but you know there, there has been talk that you know he, he perhaps um, hasn't really kicked on as you might have expected um, there was a, a piece in they keep recently looking at his decision making and there's a suggestion that if he can't pass the ball to Neymar 
he'd rather not pass the ball to anyone. We saw that in the game last night a couple of times where I think it was Mitchell Backer overlapping on the left. It was the obvious pass. It was the pass that the situation demanded and Mbappe decides to do something different. And, and Johan Miku, the, the former um, Bordeaux and, and Werder Bremen and France playmaker, was, was speaking on the L'Equipe TV channel last night and, and he was saying that he thinks that you know Mbappe has regressed slightly um, and that there are questions to be asked about his decision-making. I mean, he's, he's still scoring goals pretty consistently in, in Ligue 1. But when you watch PSG on a regular basis, what you realise is that it's Neymar is the, is the guy that runs the show. We saw that again last night and Mbappe is kind of a, a support character. Um, and it is a concern because if, you know, if you're not scoring goals in what has been quite an open group phase with, with high scoring matches, it's going to be a lot harder come the last 16, assuming that PSG go on and qualify now. Broadly, what was the, the rest of the reaction to Wednesday night's win and uh, indeed Thomas Tuchel's position, which is forever uh, seen as fragile in the uh, in the French capital. Yeah, I think the overall feeling was that that last night was very similar to the way that PSG went about the latter stages of the Champions League last season. When we know they're not a team that play with a huge amount of tactical coherence, the game plan is very much keep it tight and then leave it to the attacking players. But every now and again that works, and that's what happened last night. And you know, PSG do have. Um, battled hardened, uh, reliable defensive players, you know, Marquinhos, Presnel Kimpembe, Danilo Pereira, who I thought probably had his best performance for PSG last night. And, and if that, that solid base is in place, um, then it allows Neymar and Mbappe and, and Di Maria, who okay, stayed on the bench last night, to go on and, and win games. In terms of Tuchel, I've not seen that much about him in, in the French press this morning, but I think it's probably fair to say that that will be the result that keeps him in a job until the end of the season. PSG have seen the closing pack close in in Ligue 1, but the expectation always is that they will at some point put a run of results together and end up running away with things. But had they gone out in the group phase, I think it would have been difficult for Tuchel to survive that. Um, his contract's up at the end of the season. There doesn't seem to be any great desire to, to extend that. Him and Leonardo, the sporting director, don't get on. We know that. Um, but the fact that they've, you know, that they now look like they should qualify means that he will probably stay in place till the end of the season. Well, they're set to go through as long as they don't blow it against Basaksha here in the final group game, while Man United have to go to visit Leipzig, who, of course, they dismantled in spectacular fashion at Old Trafford. But Julian Nagelsmann's side have a terrific record at home. They won all seven of their matches there with an aggregate score of 18-4. What's your thinking? Are United going to pull it out the bag? Are they going to bounce back again as they so often do? I think it's one of those games where it leaves United in a difficult situation because they know that they can play for a draw. And I think sometimes strategically that can be difficult for a manager. Whereas obviously um, Leipzig will have to win at home and uh, their game plan is probably more simple. But in theory, it could suit United. I mean, it could suit them to sit back and play on the break. Their best moments against PSG last night came when they played on the break. So I'd still have United as as slight favourites to go through. But uh, it's a difficult task. Indeed. Man United have West Ham before that, of course. West Ham, who are up in fifth. West Ham, whose manager is the Moisire himself, late of Old Trafford. Uh, And we'll be talking to Stop Hammer Time's Benji Lanyardo later on about that game. Quick word, too, while we're at it, uh, for a special three-part podcast on Neymar, uh, which our very own Nick Miller has been working on. Neymar Beyond the Headline is the title about the Brazilians' move to Paris Saint-Germain from Barcelona and how its ripple effects make it the most significant transfer ever. Ooh, sounds interesting. Anyway, next up on this Totally Football Show, we'll be getting on to the Premier League weekend with the North London Derby. Well, the fans who are back in the ground today for the first time are making a lot of noise, despite being spread out all the way from pitch side to the uh, highest tier. Yeah, I'm not sure they should be there, Mark. Uh, why is that, Steve? Well, you're not allowed to watch a game in the highest tier, are you? Uh. Stadiums might not yet be full, but Paddy Power's offers are at full capacity. If one leg of your 4 plus 4 Acker lets you down, get a free bet on all football and all markets. The Acker Cracker, from Paddy Power. Max free bet, £10, min odds 1 to 5 on each leg, online exclusive, exclude, shop bets, T's and C's apply, 18 plus, begambleaware.org. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Round 11 of the Premier League season, it is a weekend that sees the return of supporters. (laughs) 
Duncan. That was midweek at Adams Park. You tweeted, more emotional than I thought I'd be about seeing and more importantly, hearing this. Let's hear your emotions, Duncan. <laughs> yeah, you, can you hear the raw emotion in, in my voice? Um, but it's true. It was, um, I hadn't really given it that much thought. And then you, you saw it and more importantly heard the fans. And it, it was, you know, it was very poignant. Um, and then within a minute of the game kicking off, um, Wickham probably should have been given a free kick that, that they weren't. And the referee was being roundly booed. And it, it felt like a, you know, a really a step forward after all we've been through this year. So Yeah, lovely. Here's a question from Nathan Cowburn about this. He says, if or when normality resumes, will a punishment by UEFA still be games played behind closed doors, given that teams are now used to it? Hmm, interesting. I mean, that's also a financial punishment, though, isn't it? A game behind closed doors, because it denies you any gate receipts. But it's true that psychologically, when assuming that, you know, fans are allowed back into, into stadiums and then at some point fans are banned from attending a particular game, it won't seem like such a weird otherworldly thing anymore because we've all got so used to it. Lee Bowyer might be looking forward to those days already by the sounds of it. Charleston were at home to MK Dons in midweek and uh, Lee Bowyer was unhappy with the support that the Charlton fans were giving. His team said they were too quiet, which seems a bit harsh after they've been. It was really cold. How many were there? um, One or two thousand. I think a thousand, wasn't it? Because everyone was on trial. Were they? Okay. All right. Not the first time for Lee Bowyer. Hey. <laughs> well, uh, I'm expecting there to be the full 2,000 compliment at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium come this Sunday. At Good acoustics at, at Tottenham, so I suspect yeah. you'll I suspect you'll hear those 2,000. Well, this is going to play havoc with official attendance records now, because behind closed doors, fine, you can just record it as zero, but with a with an asterisk. But now mm. there's going to be low. You know, for lo- for a long time, the record low Premier League attendance was Wimbledon Everton in the early 90s, which is about three and a half thousand fans. But right. um, now there's going to be a load of 2,000 supported games. Well, I imagine, Duncan, you could just deploy the asterisk for these attendance figures as well. What will be interesting, though, is if, is if there are any, say, Tier 2 venues that don't even attract the full 2,000, you know? I mean, Arsenal are still going to put 59,826, aren't they? So. Now, uh, Spurs taking on Arsenal this Sunday at 4.30 at their place. And uh, it's an interesting clash, this one. Uh, first against 14th. Spurs being the team in top spot. Tottenham with the best defence in the division as well. Arsenal, meanwhile, famously struggling to score. It looks, Michael Cox, cut and dried this, is it? I think Tottenham are strong favourites. Yeah, on the last few weeks, they're just a much better team. Um, I think over the last 10 years, this has maybe been the most eventful fixture in the Premier League. Maybe Arsenal-Liverpool is up there as well. But I feel like this game could be quite different. I mean, we know that Arsenal are not scoring goals. They're not really not scoring goals because they're missing chances. They're not scoring goals because they're not creating them. And I think they are playing quite defensively. And we know that in in big games, and I still think this does qualify as a big game for Spurs, Mourinho is is pretty cautious. And Spurs have kept uh, three clean sheets in a row, including their last two games against Manchester City and against Chelsea. So they are they're being quite solid defensively. Um, and I just think this could be quite a quite a patient North London derby. Usually it's, you know, blood and thunder and one of the few games in the Premier League that do have a real derby feel. But I think because of, you know, both the way that the um, the teams play and I do wonder what the atmosphere will be like. It might be, I don't know what a North London derby with 2,000 fans will be like. You know, it's almost like the players have got used to playing in front of zero fans, but mm. playing in front of 2,000 fans, I mean, will they need to kind of adjust psychologically to playing in front of fans? Will... Will there be so few fans that they don't really notice the atmosphere? I, I don't know, but I, my sense is this could be a, a fairly slow-burning game. OK, uh, a game which is presaged with a worrying bit of news for Spurs fans with Harry Kane in a race for fitness. Is this real or is it an Insta-Jose mind trick? Uh, Jose commenting about Harry Kane's supposed injury. I'm not going to tell you the nature of his injury. I think he has a good chance to face Arsenal. I don't want to lie. I don't want to hide anything in relation to is he going to play or not? Is he actually injured, Harry Kane? I mean, he's obviously got something. Is he? Um, I don't know, you know, it, it might just be muscle fatigue or something. And and Mourinho's, right, OK, Mourinho's decided to, to leave him out of the Europa League game. But yeah, this this feels like a fairly classic I mean, pre-big match Mourinho tactic. I wouldn't tempt fate talking about Harry Kane's hamstring if I was the manager of Tottenham. But um, talking of managers, did we see that Arteta... 
came out this week and said, um, talked about the number of crosses that, that Arsenal put in against Villa and said, I'm telling you that if we do that more consistently, we're going to score more goals. Um, it's maths, pure maths, and it will happen, which I don't think is pure maths. And I think it's proven that putting in lots of crosses isn't the answer to, to football. And it's interesting that essentially when... Um, City under Guardiola are struggling a little bit. They put in a lot of crosses, and obviously, you know, Arteta was trained in the in the school of Pep. But um, it also reminded me of that Carlos Carvajal quote when he was Swansea manager, when he said, talking about how he didn't like statistics, he said, "It's like if me and you went for a picnic. We take a chicken, and I eat all of it, and you have none. Statistically, you have eaten half of the chicken." Now, I don't <laughs> think that is true, and also, I wouldn't take a whole chicken to a picnic. But that's by the by, I suppose. It's an interesting quote, that one, isn't it? The just sorry, just to pick up on the Arteta quote, I think it's almost the most concerning aspect of the the Arteta story arc that we've seen this season. Um, obviously, he came in last season, had an immediate impact, and you saw immediately that there was cohesion uh, in what Arsenal were trying to do with and without the ball. They win the FA Cup. Um, you know, they get some decent results in the league. There's a bit of momentum there and it's all fallen apart the last few weeks and Arsenal have become this very ponderous team, a painfully ponderous team who don't create any chances, who don't move the ball around quickly enough. Um, and I sort of assume that at the same time, Arteta is still sort of holding on to these principles that he that he's been trying to introduce since the start. But to hear him come out with this almost sort of Sam Allardyce-esque uh, assessment of the value of the cross is a, a troubling development uh, from an Arsenal perspective. Well, I saw someone point out that obviously he played for quite a while under David Moyes, and David mm. Moyes, Man United at home to Fulham, had had a lot of crosses, eighty-three. So, yeah. yeah. Arsenal currently sit fourteenth in the table. They are as many points from the top three as they are from the bottom three. Which are they more likely to end up in, or closest to, come the end of the season? Top three, I would say. <laughs> All right, More facts and figures for you. Spurs are currently on the longest unbeaten run in the Premier League. Nine matches, in fact, since that opening day defeat to Everton. Jose Mourinho has never lost a home game against Arsenal in 10 previous meetings. And Arsenal haven't won at Spurs in the Premier League since March 2014. Any other facts and figures we should know ahead of this game? Duncan. Just a little cause for celebration for Tottenham fans that you know, having sat on, on top of the Premier League for a bit now, they've now overtaken Bolton in terms of total days on top of the Premier League. So slowly but surely, they're coming back to glory. Well, are they? That's interesting. Do How seriously do you take them as title contenders this season? And if you don't, what is it you think that uh, was will be their undoing? Well, I think it's, it is down to Harry Kane, isn't it? I think if he can get through 35, 36 games, then I think they've got a pretty good chance. But... If he misses a couple of months, as he often seems to do, then that I think that will derail them quite a lot. Mm. Of course, taking August out of this season, a massive boost to his chances of uh, of helping Spurs to the title. Tom, your take? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess in terms of the, the title picture, um, the only danger for teams like Spurs and, and Chelsea, who find themselves in the mix currently, perhaps somewhat expectedly, is that Liverpool go on an incredible run and you know, just open up a 10-point gap. But it doesn't really feel like that's going to happen. I, I can't see any team running away with it this season. And yeah, we, I mean, it's we've not been used to seeing proper mass title races uh, in the Premier League era. Um, but it does feel like if we're ever going to find ourselves in a situation where there are you know three or four teams all in with a shout going into the last couple of weeks of the season, it it, it will be this season. And I think I think Spurs are just as likely to be a part of that group as, as anyone. Michael? Yeah, I agree with what Tom and Duncan said. I think my concern would be there's a few defensive players who have an error in them. And uh, I think if you're going to win the title, you need a lot of points and you, you can't really withstand many errors. So that'd be my concern. But going forward, they look exceptional. OK, they're currently level on points with Liverpool, with Chelsea two points behind Liverpool. This weekend, in fact, later on on the Sunday, we'll be taking on Wolves at Anfield. That's at 7.15 Sunday evening. Also a game that should feature a smattering of supporters, but won't, of course, involve uh, Raul Jimenez, who suffered that fractured skull in a collision with David Luiz at Arsenal on Sunday. Uh, Diogo Jota will be up against his former club. 
While Liverpool looking less than irresistible of late, they've already dropped more points from winning positions than they did in the whole of last season. I'm quite looking forward to seeing how Wolves approach this one. I've been really interested the way they've played the last couple of weeks. They've switched to back four for the first time since they got promoted to the Premier League. And I was interested the way they played against Arsenal. They, they played four attackers and they actually looked more comfortable playing attacking football, which I haven't really seen them do under Espirito Santo in the Premier League. They've generally been sitting deep, good at times in possession, but really quite reactive. And they looked a bit more... A bit more liberated playing, particularly the first half away at Arsenal last weekend. And I actually thought they looked quite nervous when they then reverted to sitting deeper and soaking up pressure. They didn't look particularly confident. I mean, obviously, the the, the Jimenez injury was so bad that we were, you know, when, when there was news that he had a, a fractured skull, but he was hopefully going to be OK in the grand scheme of things, we were kind of relieved. But it's also a massive problem for them I mean it's a massive injury have we heard this time last week that Jimenez is going to be out for the rest of the season as we expect we would have said well that's the most significant injury that's happened in the Premier League so far so it'll be interesting to see how they they play going forward but I think in this game on the break actually they they might play three really quick players and could cause uh, a still very depleted Liverpool backline some serious problems Hmm. potentially uh, Liverpool dealing with a a sizable absence of their own in this game though uh, with Alisson out of the Champions League midweek and potentially not available for this as well. But his replacement fared uh, very brightly in the midweek game against Ajax. Duncan, tell us more. Yeah, I mean, Kelleher came in instead of Adrian for the world's most injury-prone goalkeeper um, and did well, you know, kept a clean sheet, made a couple of good saves, but I think more importantly, looked pretty comfortable with the ball at his feet. You know, that has been Adrian's big issue, not his shot-stopping, which he's actually pretty good at, but his decision-making with the ball at his feet in the box. We've seen a number of errors. And so I imagine Kelleher will continue. Um, and then obviously at the other end, Diego Jota, who started so well for Liverpool against his old team. And, you know, sometimes that that spurs people on. But if he does score in this game, it'd be, he'll have scored in his first five at Anfield, which is pretty good. But looking this up, didn't realise Alan Shearer, when he went to Newcastle, scored in his first 15 games at St James's Park, which is insane. Because I think a lot of people forget that, you know, he did pretty well when he first went to Newcastle and obviously that was the season when Keegan resigned halfway through but yeah 20 goals in 15 consecutive games is, is a pretty good start certainly is well it's close to a decade since Wolves last won a league game at Anfield uh, Mick McCarthy's Wolves back then beating Roy Hodgson's Liverpool 1-0 next up we'll put the clocks back even further than that though with the first meeting in the league for 16 years between Chelsea and Leeds You're listening to the Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Chelsea leads Saturday at 8 o'clock. It's Lampard against Bielsa. Ooh, Spygate. It's also the return of one of the all-time great English rivalries. 1970. The stage is set for a good old-fashioned north-south ding-dong. The gritty Yorkshiremen of Leeds United meet those swinging Londoners from Chelsea. The Chelsea players was like the Beatles, if you like, long hair and, you know, down around Chelsea and that completely different. It was called Ellen Road as opposed to King's Road, you know, it's, it's slightly different, isn't it? You know, you, you know, you had the, the cloth cap blokes up there and you had tie-dye shirts down in, in the King's Road. Alan Clark and David Webb there. Park your whip it then and let's relive one of the bitterest, muddiest and least geographical set of grudge games in English football. Key encounter, the two 1970 FA Cup finals, two of the most brutal games in the history of English football. The first took place in April, a month earlier than usual, to give the national side time to prepare for that summer's World Cup in Mexico. The pitch at Wembley, which had hosted the Horse of the Year show the previous weekend, providing a fittingly agricultural setting. Five minutes between Leeds and the Cup. Hutchinson, a goal! It finished 2-2, so they had to have a replay three weeks later anyway, this time at Old Trafford, where Chelsea triumphed 2-1 thanks to Peter Osgood, David Webb and Ron Chopper-Harris. Webb to Jones, to Gray. Gray brought down by Harris... And Harris has caught him behind that left knee. 
And Osborne and Bremner. And, oh, Hutchinson right into Bremner. There was no excuse for that. Charlton. And, oh, Charlton right at Osborne. And it's Bremner for Leeds. And brought down by Cook. And certainly nobody's loving anybody in this game. Modern estimates are that the two sides should have received 20 yellow cards and six reds. As it was, just the one yellow was shown. The rivalry flourished throughout the 80s, with the supporters often getting stuck in too. Chelsea's owner, Ken Bates, after one particular clash in the 80s, saying, I shall not rest until Leeds United are kicked out of the Football League. Their fans are the scum of the earth, absolute animals and a disgrace. I will do everything in my power to make this happen. And Bates later inflicted perhaps the greatest punishment possible in the game on Leeds when he became their owner. 16 years then, since their last league meeting, they clash again this weekend. Wouldn't it be great to see Frank and Marcelo send the boys out for a proper blood and thunder, proper men's football game again this weekend? What are, what are the prospects, do you think? <laughs> I mean, it'll be blood and thunder, at least from Leeds' perspective, because that is the only football that they play, not in a sort of dirty Leeds way, but in a sort of, you know, get up right in your grill kind of way. Um, interesting to note that these uh, are two teams that like to have the ball a lot. They're both in the top four for average possession this season, which is no surprise from Leeds, given that that is how they've always played under Bielsa. And, you know, we know that Lampard wants Chelsea to be a team who who always sort of take the initiative in their matches. But I think it, it leaves Lampard with a decision to make about how to go about this. Do they try and go toe-to-toe with Leeds and do they try and dominate the game and, and have all the possession or and are they capable of doing this if they if they decide to you know to go about it a different way do they allow Leeds to have the ball sort of you know let them punch themselves out a little bit and and, and perhaps try and be a bit more surgical in, in the way they they attack and, and play on the counter-attack a little bit more I mean the irony is if you put the 1970s Chelsea team up against this Leeds team they wouldn't foul them because they probably wouldn't get anywhere near them so mm. they're so fast but um I think the a little forgotten subplot for this game is Patrick Bamford. You know, he he was at Chelsea for a, a long time. They loaned him out to six different clubs, and you know now he he returns as kind of a a genuinely impressive Premier League striker. He's had forty open play shots um, this season, which is more than any other player. Um, Leeds having averaging like eight point six open play shots inside the box, which is more than any other team. So, you know, Chelsea's defence has been amazing the last few weeks. Uh, Mendy needs one more clean sheet to go level with Kepa since the start of last season. But um, this is going to be a really big test. Right. Will Marcelo Bielsa be sending someone with a spanner or whatever utensil it was to Cobham to get get a sneaky peek at Chelsea's training? Because, of course, uh, Spygate, these are the two managers on either side of the Spygate affair two seasons back. A spanner sounds amazing. It wasn't a spanner, was it? What was the... Cut someone's brakes. Pliers. Pliers and and binoculars. Right. Anyway, of course he won't. That's all behind them. It, it has the potential to be a really good game, this, no? Chelsea bang in form after that 4-0 win away in Sevilla. Very, very tight at the bat. Leeds, who've not been great of late. In fact, beaten 4-1 in their last trip to London. That was at Palace. But capable of fine performances on the road, like the 4-3 at Anfield, or the 3-0 when they had at Aston Villa. Uh, yeah, Leeds uh, capable of anything. What, what do you think, Michael? Yeah, looking forward to it. And... Uh... I like a Saturday night game as well. It's oh. quite obviously got a new slot in this uh, unusual period, but Saturday evening I think is a really underrated time for football. So yeah, I think this is the probably the highlight of the weekend in terms of what might be a, a promising game. I'm very much looking forward to it. When's your worst time of day or week to watch football? Well, yeah, I mean Monday five thirty. I'm not sure I've actually watched one of those games in their entirety. I mean, oh. of the traditional sorts, I just think early at weekends is is bad in general. Gary Neville was whining about that the other day, saying it produced bad games. Actually, on the subject of watching games, that, I don't know what you meant, did you talk about the viewing figures for the 1970 FA Cup final, James? The replay got 28 million. Yeah, which is the fifth largest uh, viewing figures for any event in UK television history ever, which I find fascinating and extraordinary. I think a few things must have clicked into place for that to happen obviously availability of televisions i think the replay was probably a midweek evening which probably means more people would be watching than saturday 3 p.m but yeah the most watched club game in uk television history and also because people don't watch tv anymore in quite the same way that sort of league table is probably going to remain largely untouched forever i've got the five here if you're interested okay go on then 
Uh, in fifth place, we've yep. got Leeds against Chelsea in 1970. Right. Fourth was Apollo 13 touching down. Wow. Third was a documentary about the royal family in 1969. Second was Princess Diana's funeral. And first was, of course, the 1966 World Cup final. The interesting thing maybe is that we had an entry into the top 10 this year, which was Boris Johnson announcing man? the... Yeah, I think, think that was 11th. They just missed the okay. cut. But yeah, uh, Boris Johnson announcing the, the UK-wide lockdown in oh, March was right. into the yeah. top 10. That was... Uh, yeah. Also, maybe interesting that this... Brought the 19- together, didn't it? So everyone <laughs> sat around... Yeah, I mean, this this 1970 uh, FA Cup final replay was actually only 12 days after the moon landing. So uh, a massive fortnight for television. And to be so. fair, the the moon was in a better state than the pictures. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Um, no, but it, it does have a bearing. A lot of TVs, a listener, were rented in those faraway times. So people will have probably have rented a set to watch Armstrong and the boys do their business away on the moon and you know we'll still have had the set there tough place to go the, yeah. place. difficult <laughs> atmosphere windy <laughs> <laughs> oh dear anyway uh, but there you go Chelsea taking on Leeds this weekend uh, one last thing for me will Olivier Giroud have earned the nod with his quartet of goals midweek yeah I'm not sure he will I'm not sure tactically it necessarily suits him as well I think against a high line Lampard will want someone to run in behind so maybe Giroud will be back to his classic plan B role okay they call it a joker de luxe in French is that right luxury substitute and that is basically what Olivier Giroud has been for the last what four or five years in club football at least obviously he still starts every game for France but very much a joker de luxe uh, when it comes to the club game very nice a recent poll done by Leeds Live found that Chelsea are still the third most hated club among the United fan base, even though they haven't faced each other in the league for 16 years. While Leeds still regularly feature prominently in similar votes, done among Chelsea supporters. Interesting. Anyway, next up, West Ham and Man United. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. West Ham will have fans this Saturday tea time as they settle down to face Man United at the London Stadium. First time that Hammers will be taking on their rivals from Manchester uh, from above them in the table since August 1998. Woof. Benji Laniado of Pickfair and the Stop Hammer Time podcast joins us now. Hey, Benji. Hey, Jimbo. Uh, where are you this time? I am in glamorous Finsbury Park. Nice. Uh, yeah, last time I was in Scotland, but unfortunately, yeah, back, back in Finsbury Park. Not that, it, not that it's a bad place. It's lovely. No, no. You know. I'm also in Finsbury Park, just for the record. No way. Way. Listen, I'm just going to take this on a bit. Uh, this Saturday, <laughs> then, uh, fans will be present at London Stadium. Are you going along, Benji? No, I'm not. I'm, I didn't didn't get in the ballot. I actually wasn't. I didn't put myself in the ballot in the first place. Right. I took the sort of seventy thirty option, which is waiting until seventy percent of fans are back in the stadium. So I won't be there personally. No. I see. Okay. Well, West Ham certainly will be, and they are now fifth in the table, four points, Benji, off top spot in the Premier League. What does Uncle Jeff say about all this? Oh, he's very excited, Jimbo. We're the, the Uncle Jeff coefficient is currently at plus thirteen. Which is the best in the league, which means, you know, technically on last season, we are the most improved team in the league. Um, and yeah, it's, it's looking pretty rosy. I think we've got to be a little bit careful of revisionism here because people are sort of you know, looking at our result against Villa and thinking that we played really well and we, and we didn't. We got incredibly lucky. Um, but yeah, things, things looking really positive, really positive. OK, why are you doing so well? Is it David Moyes? I think he's got to get most of the credit, yeah. I mean, he's, he's solved a lot of problems at West Ham over the last little while. You know, he's the one that realised that Antonio had all the attributes to be a centre-forward, you know, just, just as he did with Arnautovic before him. You know, he, he, he's also the one who had the, the bravery, really, since, since we came out of lockdown, to leave £100 million worth of players in, in Allaire, Yarmolenko and, and previously Anderson on the bench. And instead he's playing sort of three grafters up top him, you know, Bowen, Antonio and Fornals. They're not without talent, but their defining characteristics are, are, you know, it's probably their work rate. And Moyes is also the one that realised we don't really have any good sort of traditional fullbacks at the club. So we're, we're playing without any by going three at the back. And I think on, on top of that, he seems to have sort of ushered in 
a sort of dynastic succession from Mark Noble to Declan Rice as well, both as, as the, the core of our midfield and as captain as well. So, yeah, he, he is a problem solver and it's working. And I, and I think everyone knows what they're doing at West Ham at the moment. Mm. Well, it'll be interesting to see how he fares then this weekend against Man United, a team at which he most definitely did not have the answers in his uh, just about a season there. How sustainable do you think this success is? Sometimes when you do extra well in the fixtures that you, you're not expecting to, it can all then come unstuck in the ones that you were banking on points in. Which category would this fall into? We actually won this fixture last season, so so uh, so a victory would not change the Uncle Jeff coefficient. Um, you've got to assume United will be tired after last night as well, and it feels quite Man United-y at the moment to follow a really good result, like the, the comeback against Southampton with a couple of crap ones. So hopefully we sort of fall into that sequence. Well, as you point out, United have lost on their last two visits to the London Stadium. So are you saying that West Ham are actually the favourites for this one, Benji? Well, we've got lots of options now as well. I think something that will be quite interesting to track over the next few fixtures is whether Ben Rama will be able to break into the team. He's now come off the bench and provided an assist for a really important goal twice in a row now. Um, and I think there's, there's a bit of a clamour among West Ham fans to get him in this weekend. But he's got to dislodge four nows. And Fornells is quite a curious character, actually, because he he is someone that I I sort of struggle to really understand what he does, apart from work really hard, which is great. Um, and I think one thing that Moyes is doing really effectively is he's making the players on the bench realise that they have got to put in a shift if you play for West Ham at the moment. So when Ben Rama came on, he he put himself about a bit without much effect, to be fair. It was mostly giving the ball away in fouls. Um, and actually, the same was the same is true to be said of Allaire, who came on for Antonio at half time, and was probably the most energetic we've seen him. Again, he was ratting around and he was he, he was fouling players and he was and he was making the most of his body, which is something we haven't seen from him for for a little while. So we've got options, and I, and, and I sort of increasingly trust David Moyes to get the right kind of configuration of players here. We, we, we changed our entire configuration at half-time and, 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 our, and our formation and, and made two substitutions on Monday. So, so we've got the options. It'd be interesting to see what it goes with against, against United. Mm, the Moisire. What do you think, Michael? Why, why is he doing so spectacularly well at West Ham when he did so spectacularly badly at Man United? Um, I mean, I think he did badly at Manchester United because I think he struggled to adjust to the expectations of a club like that. I think it's clear from the way he sets up tactically and maybe just his demeanour as well, that he's probably more suited to um, a mid-table side or an underdog, a side that can be defensive when they go away from home, sometimes defensive at home. So, yeah, it's part of that. But, I mean, I think he deserves great credit for what he's done at West Ham. As as Benji points out, I think the the reformatting of of Arnautovic, who really, you know, kept them up the first time, and and Antonio now has been really impressive. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased to see he's... He's kind of back in his stride. He looks a bit more, probably more at home than I've ever seen him before. You know, even in that first spell at West Ham, I still thought it felt like he was a bit of a, a caretaker almost. Whereas now he feels a little, well, he, he looks a bit more settled and a bit more secure in his job. I'm, I'm sure you guys have been talking about this, but I think it will be quite interesting to see what impact having fans back will have on West Ham. Because actually in footballing terms, for, for, for a little while now, things have been pretty positive. The problem at West Ham, a you know, major problem, has been the stadium and the interaction between the fans and the club. So having fans back in the stadium, you know, ironically, might not necessarily be a good thing for us. I saw again. I wonder if you guys have discussed this already. As much as it's going to be, you know, nice to have lots of, you know, well, some fans back in the grounds. It also means that you'll be able to hear their anger and booing, and, and West Ham fans are, are prone to both. All right. Well, we'll see if they have things to boo about then Saturday tea time as United visit. United with uh, an extraordinary record away from home as it stands. Eight league wins in a row on the road, which is the best in the club's history. Incredible. All right, Benji, best of luck then. Hope you uh, enjoy the game Saturday and uh, look forward to catching up with you from some exotic locale soon. Cheers, Jimbo. Now, also this weekend in the Premier League, Sheffield United host Leicester, who are coming off back-to-back defeats after being uh, defeated by Fulham in the 5.30 Monday night game. If you're beaten by Fulham in a game which nobody watches, does it actually happen, Tom? And do you have any information as to how this supposedly took place? 
I mean, it felt like a result that nobody had seen coming. It felt like a bit of a home banker. But then if you look at Leicester's season, perhaps it isn't actually all that surprising because their home form has been patchy. They've been much better away from home. They've only dropped two points away from home all season, which makes them the best uh, away team uh, in the land, I think. Um, you know, they've won convincingly at Manchester City, at Leeds. Uh, they've won away at Arsenal. Uh, and all their most, all their poorest performances have have come at home. You know they lost three 0 at home to West Ham. They lost one 0 at home to Villa, um, and now at home to Fulham. So it feels like there's there's potentially an, an issue there. Um, and also, in fairness to Fulham, that you know, they have looked a little bit better of late. Um, okay, you know they they shipped three goals in the previous game, losing at home to Everton. But prior to that. They were narrowly beaten at West Ham and, and, and squandered that stoppage time penalty that Adamola Luckman made a bit of a hash of. They beat West Brom in their previous game. Um, and Scott Parker has been saying for a while that he feels like they've tightened up a little bit. So perhaps it wasn't quite as surprising as it initially appeared. OK. Well, can Fulham do it again this weekend? They take their uh, one-game winning streak to ooh, the Etihad to take on Man City. Remarkably... Both sides here, Man City and Fulham, are looking to win back-to-back Premier League games for the first time this season. Good Lord. I really want this game to end in a draw um, for the specific reason that City will then have a record of 4-4-2 after 10 games, um, which used to happen quite a lot, strangely, and now doesn't. Um, It happened 10 times in the 1990s, but only three times since 2006-07, kind of mirroring... The, uh, the decline of the 4-4-2. So you actually have figures for how many times teams after 10 games had a 4-4-2 record? Yes. Okay. That's how I operate, yeah. <laughs> City's last 15 meetings with Fulham Duncan have seen them win 12 times and draw mm. three. They haven't been defeated by the Cottagers in a fair while. But there was a good one. 2008, um, City were 2-0 up. Uh, and Fulham needed to win to stay up and they came back to win 3-2 and it was that end of season where City then I think they lost to Liverpool in their penultimate game and then uh, conceded eight at Middlesbrough on the final day in sort of Sven Goran Eriksson's tour de force before Right, was was that the Roy Hodgson Fulham? Yeah, it's the result right. which I mean they were mathematically down at uh, about 60 minutes in and then survived and then the next season finished in the uh, Europa, Europa League, or UEFA Cup places UEFA and Cup, then yeah. Then got to the UEFA Cup final in twenty ten. Do you think Fulham could spring a surprise on Man City, Tom? I think City will find it harder going than they did against Burnley. Okay, but no. To answer your question, elsewhere the other games happening this weekend in the Premier League. Well, not Villa Newcastle. That's been postponed after an outbreak of the Rona at Newcastle's training ground. Five Newcastle players and two staff members have tested positive. First Premier League game to be postponed due to the coronavirus since football restarted in June. Uh, the early kickoff Saturday is Burnley against Everton. Everton have lost four of their last five games. Is it about to get worse at Turf Moor? Possibly, just for the reason that it is uh, Sean Dyche's 200th Premier League game. Um, and maybe the carnival atmosphere will will uh, you know get Burnley playing well. Um, What's his win-drawn-loss record? After 200 games. I don't have that, but what I do have is the number of, or the list of single-syllable players he's played, which I always associate with Sean Dyche. Um, <laughs> you know, when you look at a Burnley team How many? sheet, it's very, it's very staccato. How many? Um, well, I can read them out if you want. No, 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 quickly. but I'd, I'm keen to guess. So, I've got I'll one. i to count them. Okay. How many? Me, Wood. It's quite a lot. Barnes. Me, about, Wood, Barnes, yeah. About 14, Pope. I think. 14? Pope. Can you read them? I yeah, can't read them. Well, give us a second, because we're still missing another 10. Oh, we're we, we going to try and guess them all? Well, maybe not all 14 of them. Go on then, Duncan. Listeners are getting impatient. Cool. Okay, listed in most appearances order. It okay. goes me, Barnes, Cork, Wood, Vokes, Pope, Boyd, Keane, Long, Jones, Ings, Gray, Duff, Hart, Wells, Reed, Dunn. Doe a deer. It's a bit like Sound of Music, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I really hope someone puts some music beneath that. Anyway, I fear we've got off the track a bit. Uh, what about Everton's prospects of turning this slump around at Turf Moor, Michael? I've been quite unimpressed with Everton in recent weeks. They seem to have hit a brick wall with their performances when they were using a 4-3-3. They then adjusted it and changed shape to 3-4-3 for that trip to Fulham, which they won relatively convincingly, hanging on a bit at the end. 
But now they've got an issue with uh, with Luca Dean's absence, which, if you're going to be using wing backs, um, is a major problem. I mean, Iwobi played there last weekend, clearly didn't work. I think he looked quite uncomfortable in that position. That said, I haven't been that impressed by Burnley either. I think they've kind of gone slightly under the radar. People have talked about Fulham and West Brom coming up and struggling. Sheffield United, we've spoken a lot about. But, I mean, Burnley aside, I just always fancy to get out of trouble. But one win in nine games is not impressive. I think if you do look at their underlying stats, they've been performing slightly better than five points from nine games would suggest. So I think this could just be quite a bad quality game, to be honest. I mean, one thing to say about Burnley is that they are the proverbial tough nut to crack at Turf Moor in that uh, in 2020, only one team have have beaten them by more than one goal at Turf Moor in the league, and that was Chelsea a couple of weeks back. Okay. So they occasionally lose, but they, they don't lose by much. I quite like the fact that everyone else has spent 2020 saying, yeah, home and away form doesn't matter anymore because there's no fans. But Tom relentlessly not on, sticks not on to Sean, the... Uh... Not on Sean Dyche's watch. Anyway, uh, that's happening this weekend, Saturday, 12.30. Early game on Sunday is West Brom, who got their first win of the season last weekend, will be hosting Crystal Palace. Palace, who are looking less than irresistible, they've lost back-to-back matches against Burnley and Newcastle without even scoring. What do you think? Well, it's obviously Roy Hodgson going to one of his former Mm. clubs. Um, It's also quite a nice time to remind people of how a win percentage can't tell you anything in isolation. Because if you look at Hodgson's win percentage throughout Premier League history, 35 at Blackburn, not good enough, uh, got sacked. 34% at Fulham, great job, as discussed uh, by Michael a minute ago. 35% at Liverpool, terrible. Um, 36% at West Brom, brilliant job, um, much missed. And 33% at Palace, also a great job. So yeah. <laughs> That's remarkably consistent, though. Yeah. What was it at Liverpool again, sorry? 35% at Liverpool. Remarkable. You know what you're getting with Roy Hodgson. Okay, Monday night, the weekend wraps up with Brighton against Southampton and we'll have a chat about that game on Monday morning in our Totally Football show then. Before we conclude today, though, we'll be hearing very shortly from Alvaro Romeo about the extraordinary situation in Madrid ahead of a very big sequence of games for the Marenghis. Before that, we'll hear from Lee Price with some odds from Paddy Power. Hello, listeners. Firstly, I'd like to assure you there'll be no singing in this segment today. Sorry about that. Instead, I'm going to shoehorn in another festive theme. Yippee! While actually talking about some odds for once. Who knew people like numbers so much? Not me. Well, I present to you the 12 lays of Christmas. And that isn't how it sounds. Honestly, Mum. 12. Sit your 12 to 1 on to beat Fulham this weekend. That means if you bet £1, you're very tight. And you'll win about 8p. 11. Already struggling with this theme. But Tottenham are 10 to 11 to beat Arsenal in the North London derby. Given what we've heard earlier in the show, that sounds like hashtag value. 10. Marcus Fasher's main is number 10 and man of the year. He's 17-10 to score against West Ham. 9. Leeds are 9-2 to win at Chelsea. I'd say that Bielsa's is well prepared anyway. 8. Crystal Palace are 8-5 to to win at West Brom in a game between two teams I can never fully trust in my accumulator. 7. The number of injuries that Liverpool have, according to a tweet I saw, no, I won't research it properly. 6. Brighton are 6-4 to to beat Southampton. I often fancy Brighton to do well, but it seems that Southampton get the results I expected the Seagull, so maybe I should have done their odds instead. Oh well, no one listens anyway. 5. It's 12-5 Burnley grind out a draw against Everton because Burnley. 4. Liverpool are ravaged, but are still 4-9 to to beat Wolves. 3. Set me free from this trope. It's 3-1 to that Jamie Vardy scores last in Sheffield United versus Leicester. 2. Excitingly, we have joint favourites for the Golden Boot this season. Woo-hoo! Kane and Salah each priced at 4-1. to one. 1. Man City are the new favourites to win the Premier League, despite being something like 25th in the table. Speaking of one, it's time for me to do one. All the best. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. Terms and conditions apply. And when the fun stops, stop. Now, whether you're a Real Madrid fan or just enjoy rubbernecking, one of the events of the season was seeing them go 3-0 down in the first half to Shakhtar Donetsk back on match day one of the Champions League. They pulled it back that day to a more respectable 3-2 defeat. But this week, following a 2-1 loss to Alaves in the Liga at the weekend, they went and did it again. Tuesday in Kiev, the mighty Merengues losing to Shakhtar a second time and this time failing to even trouble the score sheet. 2-0. Joining us on the line, Alvaro Romeo. Hi, Alvaro. 
Hello, James. The knives are out for Zinedine Zidane in Madrid, Alvaro, ahead of a crucial fortnight for Real Madrid. What is he actually doing wrong, first of all? Well, I think that a few things are not right. Uh, number one, uh, the rotations are not working for Real Madrid. Uh, there are some key players who have had a terrible form this season and at the same time injuries hasn't helped either. But uh, we cannot only attribute uh, everything that's happening at Real Madrid to that because I do believe that uh, there is something very wrong uh, when it comes to tactical terms. For example, what happened the other time at Kiev when Shakhtar Donetsk pretty much dominated Real Madrid in the second half uh, to an embarrassing extent. Uh, that is not related to, to the injuries or to anything like that. I mean, that is just the players and the managers not doing the right thing. And I believe that uh, the problem at Real Madrid is multifactorial. Uh, the manager has some responsibility, yes, definitely the players as well. But uh, Real Madrid president too, because uh, the, the legacy of Cristiano Ronaldo uh, has been really mismanaged. Uh, Real Madrid had 100 million in their hands in summer 2018 to sign the right player to replace Cristiano Ronaldo. And instead, Real Madrid president uh, went for youngsters like Vinicius, for example, like Militao, later for Jovic. And uh, none of them uh, have produced uh, what Cristiano Ronaldo could do. So I think that the problem is on everybody and the blame is on everyone. Mm. Plus, they splashed a bunch of cash on Eden Hazard, who went and picked up his eighth injury uh, of his brief time uh, at Real Madrid uh, just last uh, just last weekend. All right. Well, so the uh, the pressure is real for Zinedine Zidane. Then there's, there's the reports in the the papers are of Mauricio Pochettino being lined up and maybe Raúl to to step in to try and steady the ship. Uh, what's the key game then? Is it next week's trip to Borussia Mönchengladbach in which? If they don't get the result, they might not qualify for the, for the last 16 for the first time in 25 years. I think that that game is the key one. Uh, beating uh, Gladbach is a must, uh, not only because Real Madrid, for their reputation, they have to win the last 16 of the Champions League, but also because, uh, you know, they, they've got some financial problems as well, like uh, every other club in Europe at the minute. And uh, qualifying for the last 16 alone uh, pays around 11.5 million for Real Madrid, uh, 3 million for beating Gladbach, and uh, another 8 or 9 for qualifying for that round. So if they don't qualify... What will be the consequences? I think that, that is one of the key questions here because we have no precedent about that. As you well said before, Real Madrid always qualified or went through the group stage, definitely with this precedent. So let's see uh, what uh, Florentino does. But uh, I believe that this time Zinedine Zidane is highly likely to be sacked if they don't progress. And uh, this is a new event for Zidane as well because let's not forget that Zidane's destiny has been always in Zidane's hands. Uh, as a player, he decided to resign before World Cup 2006. He decided to retire, sorry, uh, before World Cup 2006, when he had one year left of his contract at Real Madrid. And as a manager, he resigned in 2018 after winning the Champions League just because he didn't like uh, some of the comments done by Cristiano Ronaldo and Gareth Bale. But this time, his future is not in his hands. It's in the president's hands. And uh, I know that they, they've got a friendship and Zidane and Florentino like each other and all that, but Zidane is likely to be sacked if uh, they lose against Gladbach and therefore they don't qualify for the last 16. Wow, remarkable. Before that, of course, this weekend, they're visiting uh, one of the last managers they fired, Julian Lopetegui who's at Sevilla now and had been on a terrific five-game winning streak before getting a bit of a spanking on Wednesday at the hands of Chelsea. They are, though, doing well in La Liga Sevilla again. They're just one point behind Real in fifth place, but with a game in hand. Is there high potential for more uh, disaster here for Real Madrid Saturday at 3.15? Of course, that game, if they lose it, uh, it will have some negative repercussions on the Liga table because Barcelona also seems to be uh, climbing little by little. But, uh, you know, not necessarily for Zidane now because uh, the main focus is qualifying for the Champions League last 16. Again, I go back to the finances, James. I mean, last season, Real Madrid had projected an income of £800 million pounds, and they only got 700. And they are not that bad financially, as bad as Barcelona, but they definitely have to stay in the Champions League. And yes, this game against Sevilla is very important, especially for Real Madrid's reputation as well. But the key one is next week against Gladbach. That's the game that is going to define the rest of the season for Real Madrid, for sure.
Okay, well, we'll review the Sevilla match and look forward to the Gladbach game in Tuesday's Totally Football Show. Many thanks for joining us, though, today. Look forward to speaking to you then. Thank you. Lovely stuff. That wraps it up, though, for today's Totally Football Show. So many thanks to Michael, Tom and Duncan for being with us. Any final thoughts before we leave everyone to their weekends? No, I just I genuinely looking forward to, to watching games on television with fans back in the stadium. The, the few that I've watched so far, some of the Europa League games where they've had fans in, it's just a different experience. There's there's things that the, the fake crowd noise can't even begin to replicate and it's just much more enjoyable. So I know it's only, I think, half the matches but uh, or four of the matches, but uh, yeah, I think it will be a, a big improvement. Yeah, I mean, I can confirm that is the case. The the first wild shot from Stoke uh, on Wednesday night and hearing fans ironically jeer and cheer that was, was a special moment. You can't get that from canned audience. And also the fact that we're basically the last country um, that has admitted fans back into stadiums since the beginning of the outbreak. I think pretty much all the other major European leagues have had fans in at one point or another. And it does make a big difference. And the players, the coaches themselves, say, I didn't expect... 2,000 or 3,000 fans to make as much noise as they did, but but fans do. Um, so, yeah, good to good to see them back. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed it. If you are getting along to a game this weekend, listener, if not, if you're enjoying it all uh, in front of the telly, then uh, equally, I hope you have a splendid time. We're back Monday early in the AM with our reactions to all the Premier League results and more. But that is it for today. So thanks again, everybody, and we'll catch up with you Monday. Have a great weekend. You've been listening to the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Keep up to date with everything Totally at thetotallyfootballshow.com and follow us at The Totally Show on Twitter and Insta. Check out all of the Athletic's football podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places or listen ad-free on the Athletic app. The Totally Football Show is a Muddy Knees Media production and sponsored by Paddy Power. Muddy Knees Media.